0: Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Good morning, Uh, my name is Valerie, and I'll be reading today from Genesis chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. When I finish reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and please respond with thanks be to God. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him, into Negev. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be you may be seated. Well, Good morning. My name is Camden, if we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet. um, I am not a smoker, but I have inhaled a lot of smoke over the past couple days, as many of us have. So if I start to sound like a smoker here in a few minutes, um, just know that it's not Marlboros, it's just some, some good, clean forest fire smoke that I'm working through. Uh, I, I wore my running shoes today. We have a lot of ground to cover. We have chapters 13 and 14. So let's have a word of prayer, and we are just going to dig right in this morning. Lord, we, we come before you today, and we, just, we are so thankful that you are a merciful and gracious God, that you are so patient with us. Even when we, we lack faith, we lack a trust in you. We can look to your word, we can look at these promises that you gave, we can look at these truths about who you are that you revealed to Abram thousands of years ago that are still true today because you are unchanging, Lord. And I pray that you would use these truths in our life, that we would draw closer to you, that our trust and our relationship with you would be strengthened because of our time in your house this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. My wife, Carrie, and I just celebrated our ninth wedding anniversary and we were kind of reminiscing on uh, some of our, uh, our previous anniversaries and, and trips and things that we did for that. And I was remembering back to our, our very first wedding anniversary, we went to Acadia National Park uh, in Maine. And uh, one of the days that we were there, we went to a bike rental shop and, and we rented some bikes to, to take out on, on the carriage trails around the park there. And uh, this bike shop had some, uh, some really great, good quality, solid mountain bikes that were more than adequate for what we were going to do. And so we set off and a few miles into uh, our bike excursion, I was really kind of struggling to keep up with my wife and uh we're, there was some ups and downs in the hills that um i didn't really anticipate and it's the upward climb of some of these hills was getting really quite difficult and in one of them i really struggled to get to the top of you know that you have that feeling when you get to the top and you can just kind of coast down the other side and the coasting wasn't coming. I was actually having to pedal hard to go down the hill as well. So I I started checking out this bike and looked behind me, and the back tire wasn't just low on air, it was completely flat. It was more of a track running back there than an actual tire. And the bike company had told us, if, if anything goes wrong, just give us a call, stay where you're at, and we'll bring a replacement bike to you. So no big problem except that uh, we didn't have cell phone service out there. And neither did anybody else that we came across. And it's amazing how much faster you can bike than you can walk with a bike. That was one of the thoughts that kept reoccurring to me as I walked all of the miles back to the bike rental place. This bike seemed like it was good to go, but it had a, a deficiency under the surface that when it became manifest... It kept me from moving forward. This can happen to us in our spiritual life. Have you ever had one of those just mountaintop experiences of faith where you just feel like everything is right between you and God and you feel like you have all faith to do anything, and then a week later something else happens and reveals, no, there's some part of us that is not completely trusting in God. Fear or a lack of trust in God is at the root of most of our spiritual problems. It paralyzes us and keeps us from following God, keeps us from serving Him, keeps us from loving Him and from experiencing His love in the way that we should. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that... The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God tests our faith. He sends it through quality control. And defects and deficiencies are always found that God wants to replace with a greater sense of trust in him. And we see this in the life of, of, of Abram. Eric last week gave us a, a great overview of, of um, the life of, of Abram and God's call in chapter 12, the beginning of, of Genesis 12 there. He calls Abram, gives him this sevenfold promise. And Abram starts out in faith into this land that God has promised him. But he doesn't get very far before something comes up. He didn't expect. There's a famine in the land, and he has to divert into Egypt. And as he's crossing the border into Egypt, he is gripped by this fear that the Egyptians are going to kill him and and take his wife and his possessions. And instead of trusting this promise that God gave him, God is going to make of him a great nation. He is going to curse those that curse Abram. He's going to protect him. But instead of trusting, holding on to that promise, Abram in his fear and his lack of trust comes up with a scheme to lie about who his wife is. And God, for his part, still protects Abram and Sarai through that. But when the Egyptians find out that Abram has lied to them, they kick Abram and everyone with him out of the country. In this section of scripture in chapter 13 that we just heard, Abram has come full circle, right back to where he started in this land that God promised him, back to the same altar that he had made. Do you ever feel that way? Like in our Christian life, we've done a big circle. Maybe today we feel like we're stuck in a circle. We're not really progressing in faith. There's something, some area in our life in which God is revealing to us that we need to trust him more. We need to take that next step of faith, just like Abram did. We cannot fully trust the promises of God until we fully trust the person of God. We see in, in Hebrews chapter 6, in verse 13, it says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. If we do not fully trust the person of God, there's nowhere else to go. When we take our money to the bank, we are certain that we're going to be able to get it back because even if the bank folds, they're insured by the federal government. We have all of these these safety nets to everything. I see some of you are a little hesitant to believe that. You know, the amount of money I have in the bank, they'll probably give back, you know. Um, Maybe not for everyone. But there is no one above God. There is no references for God. There is no insurance policy for God. We must trust who he is. There was no one greater by whom God could swear to Abraham, I am going to bless you. So in chapters 13 and 14, we see Abram start to learn some things about who God is. And as Abram sees that he can trust who God is in these areas, we see his trust and his faith grow. And after each step of faith that we're going to look at today, God comes to him afterwards and reinforces the decisions that he has made. Eric gave us a challenge last week as we go through uh, the story of Abram to look at all of the instances in which God speaks to Abram. So I'll add to that challenge and say, as we go through the story, look at all of the different aspects of God that Abraham learns about. In this chapter, he is going to learn that God is a God most high. In chapter 17, he learns that he is god Almighty. In chapter 21, he learns that he is the everlasting God. But there's a lot more. So um, if you're into crossword puzzles or anything, or Sudoku, use this as your next challenge. Look at all of the ways that God has revealed in a certain aspect throughout the life of Abraham. The first truth I want to look at today from God's promise to Abraham is that God is our provider. And we see this in chapter 13. After the the section that we just read in in verse 5, Abram has come full circle, and he sets off once again into this land that God has promised to give to him. And Lot is with him, and a lot of their wealth that they have is in in flocks and herds. And this takes a lot of land for them to graze and and to be uh, satisfied And so as they go, Abram and Lot and his the the herdsmen are are fighting each other to get the the land that they need to graze their animals. And Abram comes to Lot and says, There's no sense of us us fighting and, and getting into this conflict. We're gonna have to separate and and part ways. Now Abram is the elder, Lot is his nephew. So Abram could pick any land around that he wanted and say, I'm going over here, and then you can, you can go in the opposite direction with, with your flocks and herds. But he doesn't do that. This kind of land was very, very important to them. For most of us, land is, is a patch of grass behind our house that we mow and, and have barbecues on. This was the, the means to sustain their wealth. They're animals. If they don't have a place for them to graze, the animals are going to die. And away goes their wealth and their means of living. It reminds me of the great land run in 1893 in Oklahoma. Have you ever read about that? There was new tracts of land that were completely open, and you didn't have to buy them. You just had to be the first one there to put your stake in the ground of your land. Could you imagine today if there was a brand-new neighborhood that was opened up, all brand new houses. And you didn't even have to buy the houses. All you had to do was, was show up at a start line. And when the gun went off, you just had to make it to a house first and lay your claim to it, and it was yours. Can you imagine the, uh, a little bit of elbows and, and tripping and pushing going on there? But that's not what we see with Abram. We see that he trusts that God is going to provide for him. And because of that, he is able to prefer Lot over himself. We see in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, tells us, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count in equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. When we are trusting that God is our provider, that he is the one who is going to advocate for us on our behalf, we don't have to do that ourselves. We don't have to put other people down. We don't have to put ourselves first. We can obey the example of Jesus and prefer others over ourselves. Now, point one went really quickly. Don't think that they're all going to go that quickly, all right? The second truth that we see from this story, this account, is that God is our protector. And not in the way that, that God was like an ADT sign that Abram put out in his front yard. No, Abram, we're see, we see in chapter 13, took a huge risk. This is the same guy that in chapter 12 was, was worried that the Egyptian, Egyptians were going to kill him. And now in chapter 13, we see him take this incredible risk and trust that God is going to protect him. Now Lot, oh chapter 14 rather, now Lot, as he moved away from Abram and took this better land, he moved in the direction of the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And over time, he ended up living in the city. And unbeknownst to him, he was moving into a, a long-going political drama that was about to turn into a conflict. We see in, in chapter 14 that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and many of the other cities and people groups in that area were under the thumb of, this, of these four kings, King Keto-Lamor and the three others with him. And they would serve him, and they would pay tribute to him. And after 12 years of this, they say, enough is enough. We're tired of serving him. We're tired of giving him money. We're tired of saying his name. It's really hard to pronounce. Enough. And they rebel. And a year later, this king, Ketolamur, and the three other kings that are with him go on the warpath and just start running over everyone in the area. We see just a list in chapter 14 of all of the people, groups, and cities that they just steamroll over, the Amalekites and the Amorites, and then they turn and they focus on the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, and these five kings, including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, band together in the valley of Siddam, and they make their stand against King Ketelamor and the three others, and they get punched in the mouth and head for the hills, They're not able to stand in front of them either. And this leaves the cities in the plain just unguarded. And these four kings go in and take anything that they want, all of the wealth of the cities, all of the people that they want to bring back as slaves, and they take Lot and his family as well and turn to head home. And when Abram hears about this, now Abram is not a retired four-star general, he does not have a, a band of, of, natural, of you know, national reservists with him. He has shepherds that are trained to, to protect their flocks. But he and the men that are with him and some of the allies that live around him, they set off in pursuit after, after these four kings. Now, this is, not, this is not going to be an equal fight. These four kings have just obliterated everyone that they came in contact with. And now Abram... And those that are with him set off in pursuit. We see in verse 15 of chapter 14, it says, And he, that's Abram, divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people and we see in chapter, fir- chapter 15 and verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and said, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. You, Abram, you can trust me. You see what just happened? You see this victory that I just gave you against all odds? You can trust me. I am your shield. I am the one who is going to protect you we can get so easily lured into this illusion of creating a safe life. We want to live in a safe neighborhood with our home insurance and our health insurance and our insurance to cover gaps that that might come up in our insurance. We want to be surrounded by our families, have tenure at work, have our guns, have our security And we become so bubble-wrapped in this life of comfort that we try to protect that we become allergic to taking any sort of risks for God. When God calls us to do something that is out of our comfort zone, something that makes us feel inadequate, we are so hesitant to do it because of all of the things that we want to keep safe. Abram gave all of that up and took a risk for God, trusting that God would protect him. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, we see that the real enemy is not something that insurance is going to protect us from. It's not some physical calamity that might come that we could spend all night worrying about. No, it says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And because of that, it says in verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Where is our shield of faith this morning? Is it in constant use? Or is it in the basement with the the Christmas decorations? And we bring it out every once in a while when something comes up that we we need God's help with. But other than that, our possessions, our wealth, our insurance, everything else kind of keeps us covered. God wants us to live a life of faith, and that involves stepping out into situations that are uncomfortable, situations where the outcome is unknown to us. I don't know what that is for us today. It could be so many things. But maybe God is calling us into an area of service that we haven't done before. Maybe to, to teach Sunday school, to, to be a helper, to, to join the hospitality team. Maybe to talk to our neighbor, talk to a coworker. Whatever it is, that situation that we just, we just feel inadequate to do and we can always talk ourselves out of doing, God says, I am the one that will protect you. Take up the shield of faith and follow me and obey. What is it that God is calling us to do that we are hesitant to obey because we are not holding that shield of faith? When Abram saw that God was his protector, he took up that shield of faith and he took a great risk for God. So God is our provider, God is our protector, but God is also our prize. We see after this great battle, all of those possessions that those kings had taken out of these cities now belong to them because they had won the day, and now Abram went out and he defeated them, and now all of those possessions, the wealth of all of these cities that had just been raided, now belongs to Abram. That is how it worked in this time. And after this battle that Abram wins, two kings come out to meet him. One is the king of Sodom, the city, wicked city, whose possessions he now owned. And that king is coming out to formally relinquish all of those possessions to Abram, to thank him and say, all of that is yours. You won it fair and square. But before that king of Sodom comes to meet Abram, another king comes to meet him, the king of Salem. So who is this king of Salem, Melchizedek? We see in, in verses, uh, in chapter 14 and verse 18, It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom came and said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. You notice that language that Abram adopts that he hears from this king of Salem? That God is a God most high. That God is the creator and possessor of all things. So what is the, the importance of Melchizedek, this, this figure? There's only a couple of verses in Genesis 14 about him. And then we see him mentioned again in Psalm 110. And then we see a little bit more in the book of Hebrews. That kind of gives us the importance of, of this figure Melchizedek, who really is a picture and a type of Christ. And there are things that we can learn about him that help us see who Jesus is and help us see why Abram gave him this tenth of all of the possessions. So as a warning, uh, we are going to talk about giving here in a couple minutes. So brace yourself for that. But before we get there, we're going to look at who Melchizedek is and why this picture of Christ is so important. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19 tells us, talking about Jesus, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Look at the the imagery here in this passage. It's talking about the inner place behind the curtain. This was the holiest of holy places in the temple where the presence of God dwelled at the time. And the only person that was allowed to go into this place was the high priest. And the only reason the high priest was able to go in is periodically he would bring in a sacrifice to cover the blood of the people. And he would offer this sacrifice in the most holy place. And we see that Jesus has gone before us into this holy place through his ministry as a high priest. And because of that, we have this hope, we have this sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. Hebrews chapter 7 gives us a little bit more about This comparison uh, with Melchizedek and Jesus. Hebrews 7 tells us that uh, he is a king and a priest. So this was a, a little bit different. We look at the Levitical priesthood, these were not kings. There was, God was the king over Israel when the Levitical priesthood was established. And then years later, the people of Israel wanted their own king. So starting with King Saul, they had their own king and there was still separately the line of priests. But Melchizedek is a king and a priest. His name means the king of righteousness. And he's the king of Salem, which means he is the king of peace. He is this king of righteousness and peace who is also a priest. Now, the Levitical priesthood was all based on genealogy. You have Aaron, and God chose the tribe of the Levites, and no one else could be a priest or a high priest unless they fell into this genealogy. So this became very important to trace out who was whose father, when were they born, who was their son, so what time period were they the high priest, when did they pass on that mantle of being the high priest to the next person. But with Melchizedek, we're not given any genealogy. We're not given the time that he was born. We're not given the time that he died. We're not given any person that he ever handed the priesthood off to. And so he's called a priest forever. And in the same way, Jesus is our high priest forever. It says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In Luke chapter 1, when the angel comes to Mary, she tells him that Jesus is going to be the Son of the Most High, and that he will be given the kingdom Of his father david and that kingdom will have no end jesus is an eternal king and he is eternally our high priest we serve a king who emptied himself and became a servant for us who stooped to the level of washing his disciples feet And through him, we also have a high priest, not that just sacrifices for us, but that sacrificed himself for us. When we see that, when we recognize that, when we commune with Jesus in the way that Abram communed with Melchizedek, we are brought into the same response that Abram had, which is a response of giving. Abram didn't just give a certain percentage. He did give him a tenth of all of the spoil. But he didn't stop there. He gave the rest away. This was not a, a focus primarily just on, on one percentage and then say, okay, I gave you your 10%, but now I'm going I'm to take everything else back with me. Once Abram has this encounter with Melchizedek, he loses all desire to hold on to the spoil from Sodom. Are we holding tightly onto our time, our money, our possessions? Or even worse, are our time and money and possessions holding tightly onto us? Are they robbing us of our joy? Are they keeping our contentment hostage as we just wish that we had just a little bit more instead of having a heart of generosity. There's a couple great passages about giving in in 2 Corinthians I want to look at quickly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also talking about giving. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. They had practiced giving to the point that they were beginning to excel in it, and that they even began to desire to do it. In 2 Corinthians 9, he continues in verse 6 and says, The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You see this beautiful picture of this, this conduit or this pipeline of grace that we receive and that we can give through when we give. When we see what Christ has done for us, that he became poor to give us the riches of Christ. We are able to desire to give, to practice it to the point that we begin to excel in giving in, that we desire to do it, and that we become enriched so that we can live generously. This is talking not just about giving within the church, but giving outside the church as well, a life of generosity that is not holding tightly To the things that God has given us. When like Abram, we realize what God has done for us, and we realize who he is, that he is God most high, that he is worthy of everything, that he is our true prize. When Abram sees that, he loses all desire to hold on to this great wealth that he just received. He tithes a portion of it, gives the rest back, and says, I want to be known as rich towards God, not rich by these possessions that belong to someone else. We see in chapter 15, in verse 1 again, after these things, when God says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Also, fear not, you just gave away this tremendous amount of wealth that you'll probably never see again but fear not, Abram, your reward will be very great. God, Abram was able to trust that God was, his, was the one who would reward him and he didn't have to hold tightly to the things that came into his life. If we're here today and we've never accepted Christ as our savior, there's no amount of, of money or any other sort of gift or spiritual act that is going to mean anything to God until we come to him in faith, until we realize that we, are, we need a savior, we confess our sinfulness and ask him in faith to save us. If you've never done that today, we would love to take the Bible and share with you how you can know this God. But for those of us who have accepted Christ as our savior, I hope that what we see today in the life of Abram, in chapters 13 and 14. These truths about God that Abram realized will help us to trust God and to take those next steps of faith. When we realize that God is our provider, we don't have to insist on our own way. We don't have to try to control every situation. We can follow the example of Jesus, empty ourselves act as a servant and trust that God is the one who is going to provide for us. We can trust that God is our protector. We don't have to bubble wrap ourselves and keep ourselves from any situations that might expose our inadequacy. We can take up the shield of faith, trusting in God as our protector, and we can follow him out of our comfort zone. And once we see that God most high is our prize, that he is the one that rewards us, we should have no trouble giving back to him the time and possessions that he has graciously entrusted us with. I don't know about you, but my faith has a long way to go in these areas. But once we really see and dwell on who God is, our faith, just like Abram's, will continue to grow. Let me pray for us that God will begin this work in us even today. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of new beginnings, that you are a God who is patient with us, who brings us along, that desires to draw us into deeper relationship and deeper trust. Lord, I pray that you would do that work in us today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.